You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Cultural criticism of the internet age is not hard to come by. Depending on one's tastes, one can find optimistic, pessimistic, apocalyptic, capitalistic, and all other kinds of folks drawing big circles that encompass what's most important about the internet. The same goes for folks writing about the internet and Christianity. With a few searches, one can find how-to sites, jeremiads, sociology, psychology, and a host of approaches for the faithful. But what about the mystical? Eric McLuhan's book, recent book, The Census Communists, Synesthesia, and the Soul, ventures to connect worlds of computer network technology, Christian mysticism, and a particular class of clinical psychological work on synesthesia for the sake of exploring the embodied nature of Christian experience and the strange cultural results of the internet user's discarnate existence. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Eric McLuhan to the show. Thank you for coming on, Dr. McLuhan. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. Well, this investigation brings together the theological virtues and the neurological phenomenon that we call synesthesia. So, for the sake of our listeners who might not have read your book, let's begin with the latter. What do researchers mean when they say that a subject experiences synesthesia? Ah. Well, this has been noticed for quite some time, a couple of centuries, Uh, but some people have a a very strange, (laughs) um, almost hallucinatory experience of uh, anything and everything that they come in contact with. For example, um, a synesthete, and, and synesthetes are not that uncommon. Uh, a synesthete will, let's say, pick up a glass of orange juice and take a swig, and in an instant, he or she not only uh, tastes the orange juice but sees something, uh, an analogy in the area of vision, an analogy in the area of sound and of touch. Um, uh, a, a drop or two of orange juice might conjure up a tingling in the fingers that feels exactly like, uh, oh, you were stroking a cat or you were uh, playing with a very large pickle or something like that. And the smell would be affected. In other words, all of the other senses get involved immediately in the experience of any one. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you are listening to a concerto or uh, some rock music, you'll have uh, the same kind of uh, multi-sensory experience um, in which, again, it's, it's as though your sense of touch were hearing the music only as a sense, of, only as a feeling. And um, your taste was hearing the music, only you experienced a strange kind of taste. Um, the Most of the people, well, no, I can't say most, but a disproportionate number of people who have the sense of synesthesia uh, find their way into the arts. Uh, so you'll find musicians and painters and composers, uh, um, graphic artists and so on, who are synesthetes, uh, literary people. Um, I came across it first in a book by a man who had been blinded 
and uh, who recovered his sight, uh, both eyes were totally inoperable. They, they would not work at all. Um, but the other senses got together and handed him back his sight only on their terms, so that instead of seeing directly in front, he saw 360 degrees. Um, now, this has been studied. Uh, there's a charming book about it called The Man Who Tasted Shapes mm -hmm. <laughs> um, by uh, Richard Seidewick. At least I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he reports on a number of cases. He's been investigating this himself. Uh, <clears throat> synesthesia, though, <clears throat> pardon me, as far as I can make out, is a perfectly normal condition. Uh, what's abnormal is that a few people are consciously aware of it and the rest of us aren't. Hmm, okay. Now, what I discovered was that synesthesia applies to um, every one of the uh, senses that we experience and that we play with. I don't mean just the physiological sentence, senses, uh, and the most common of those are sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell, proprioception, kinesthesia, and the gut sense they call visceral. Uh, and that makes a, there are actually uh, about a dozen more. Uh, however, that's, that's another discussion entirely. But we have intellectual senses, and it was when I was reading a book on uh, scriptural interpretation uh, that I'd stumbled across on the uh, Internet, on Amazon, uh, a book called uh, Medieval Exegesis, The Four Senses of Scripture. Now, the word senses there refers uh, to what we used to call the levels of interpretation. But this writer uh, referred to them instead as senses, and he was right to do so. Uh, and apparently there is a synesthesia among intellectual senses. Um, now, this wasn't a complete novelty to me because for years and years I practiced a kind of literary criticism called practical criticism, uh, which uh, recognizes that there are at least four, they called it kinds of meaning in any literary production in a poem, in a passage of prose, in an advertisement, in anything you care to mention, newspaper article. Um, and those four are as follows. First is the literal meaning, uh, mm. by which they mean, uh, what are the items presented to the imagination? If it's a poem, what's the poem about? What does the writer talk about? Uh, simply take stock of those. Second, what is the writer or the speaker's uh, relation to those things. Uh, so what's the the feeling? Uh, and is it a genuine feeling? Because a lot of times writers, as we all know, will put on a feeling. Uh, they'll pretend to have knowledge or emotions about the things they write about for uh, sort of theatrical sake, for the sake of the article, for the sake of thought. Um, thirdly, what's the writer's or um, speaker? And I, I separate those two because often a writer will adopt a persona. What mm -hmm. is 
what is the writer's or the speaker's attitude to the audience? Do you take the audience seriously? Do you regard them as idiots? <laughs> and so on. Um, do you have any respect for them? And fourthly, why did you make this thing? What effect do you want it to have? So those are four senses or four kinds of meaning, and they're, they are the basis of this mode of criticism, which uh, gained currency in, uh, well, in literary circles at least since the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. uh, last century. Um, so there's bodily senses, intellectual senses of, of several kinds. And uh, then gradually it uh, was forced on me that there are also uh, theological senses. And, and that was interesting. Each of these groups of senses uh, has a common area. Uh, sensus communis. Sensus communis is just Latin for common sense. Mm -hmm. um, in the bodily senses case, um, the sensus communis, or the bodily uh, common sense, evidently is the sense of touch. Or so it has been held for a couple of thousand years, uh, which seems kind of respectable time. Medical <laughs> science fiddled around with the idea, but hasn't ever uh, come up with something better, at least not yet, and I'm not sure they've ever tried. If they did try, I'm sure they could come up with something. Aristotle was the first guy to point it out that uh, touch is the basic one, and he averred that all the other senses, uh, hearing, taste, smell, and so on, are uh, sort of variants on touch. Um, this isn't that hard to imagine if you think, for example, that, uh, oh, let's say when you hear something, it's because waves of sound travel through the air and strike the eardrum, they touch you. Mm -hmm. And the eardrum vibrates, and from that information, you make the sound, or you make the thing you experience as a sound. Uh, similarly, the smell. When you sniff something, you draw chemicals into your nose, the chemicals touch you, and again, you translate that into a smell. Taste equally, you put something in your mouth, you touch it, uh, and so on. Uh, so touch apparently is the meeting place. Mm. Uh, and synesthesia, uh, this interaction of the senses would seem to be uh, what we now call the operating system in uh, computer lingo. Uh, synesthesia is the operating system of, of the common sense, the senses commands. Well, that surprised me too, so uh, that wound up being a major theme in this book. I started the book simply because I'd noticed something in uh, this book on medieval exegesis uh, that struck a chord. I'd come across the experience before in a totally different context, and that context was uh, a preliterate poetry. Homer, the poetry of Homer and Hesiod, and mm. uh, actually of any society with uh, a long-standing culture that hasn't yet learned to read and write. Right, and and one of the 
contests or combats that you narrate through here uh, with the help of Eric Havelock is this contest between Plato and Aristotle on one hand with the new technology of alphabetic writing over against that sort of mimetic, uh, you know, taking on of a spoken poem. How does the experience of a spoken poem differ from a from the experience of reading a poem off the page, and why are Plato and Aristotle so concerned with that? Well, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> reading uh, in our experience is a private act. We have also developed a capacity for reading silently. Uh, and most cultures don't read silently. Their, their writing system doesn't allow it. Um, syllabaries uh, are constructed of characters, each of which stands for a whole sound, not either a vowel or a consonant, but in every case, a vowel and a consonant. Mm -hmm. um, a Japanese is a case in point. Uh, each Japanese character includes a consonant and a vowel. Well, a consonant and a vowel uh, can also be a word, uh, and quite a few, uh, quite a few of the uh, well, there there are no no letters in our alphabet. There are only 26 letters. Mm -hmm. There are no letters that constitute entire words, except maybe for a ah and I. Uh, but otherwise, I don't think we have maybe one or two more mm -hmm. uh, single letters that are entire words um, if you want to make uh, a word like ma or am or is it takes two letters uh, although we do have characters for words like the ampersand we use for an and and uh, the ampersand would be something like a, uh, a syllabary character um, but if you're reading a syllabary, uh, you have to read aloud. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but even so, writing takes multi-century involving experience and translates it into a single or a very narrow group of senses. Uh, the experience of language absent writing uh, is almost hypnotic. It's kind of like the experience of rock music. Mm. Uh, rock music isn't composed by some guy sitting at a desk with a pen and uh, sheets of lined paper. Uh, and it isn't to be experienced that way. People don't go to rock music concerts with uh, librettos and, and folios of music in their hands and follow along. Rock is a very involving experience, um, and it uh, right now uh, the experience of rock and and a lot of music um, involves the entire body. One reason we like to have the volume up loud and we boost the bass is that we want to use the body itself as an ear drum. Mm. And that's. There's no objectivity, no detachment in that kind of experience. It's, well, in the pre-literate age, back in the days of Homer, 
1200 to 1200 BC. Um, poetry was the only means of communicating cultural values. In fact, uh, they had a thing called the Encyclopedia, the Eglucleus Pedaya. Um, and all the epic poems were in, in and of themselves encyclopedias of knowledge and experience. And the way this was communicated from one generation to another was poetic. Uh, somebody would sit down and recite one of the epic poems usually to a lyre, and the lyre set up a kind of drone in the background, uh, and that helped induce a sort of trance. But uh, the experience of poetry was of the same kind as uh, we have in rock music, only it was a little less rational. Um, you were expected to, and you found it very easy to, immerse yourself in what was going on. Uh, so if the poet was reciting, let's say, the deeds of an Odysseus or Achilles or Nestor or some other character, the reciter had almost to become that character in presenting it to you. And the hearer would become so involved in the recitation that he or she would take on the person of the character. You became Achilles. Uh, you imaginatively did whatever Achilles was doing at the time. Uh, and it was so deep an experience that 20 or 30 years later or 40 or 50, uh, you could automatically recite verbatim what the poet had said. Mm -hmm. Because you had not only had the experience, you were the character for however short or long time. Um, right. And and yet, this strong poetic experience that you're talking about gives way in that crucial 4th century BCE to something more syllogistic. And one of the, one of the lines in your book that stuck with me, and I'm still carrying it around, waiting for a chance to deploy it, is as follows, quote, it is impossible to syllogize in images, close quote, yeah. Now, if our listeners try to do that for five seconds, you'll figure out why that's the case. But <laughs> why is that shift from the image to the syllogism so important in intellectual history? Well, you asked about Plato and Aristotle, and uh, I, in my own long-winded way, I was getting around there. Oh, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, you've actually just rephrased the same question. Here's the problem. If you're that deeply involved in language and in words as not just carriers of ideas, but as experiences in and of themselves, uh, then you have no detachment whatever. In fact, if you brought detachment to bear on that experience, um, you wouldn't get it. It'd be like... Uh, an invader from Mars or a visitor from another planet landing on Earth and, and just looking around uh, and taking stock of what was going on. Uh, you, similarly, rock music and so on, you cannot experience that objectively. You have to participate in it uh, in order to get it, to get the idea. But the trouble was, Plato and Aristotle had discovered something brand new. 
And that was objectivity and detachment. Rational detachment uh, characterized the mode of philosophy and metaphysics. And their enemy then, if you had to be detached in order to think rationally, um, these people who were still immersed in experience uh, could never make it. You had to have detachment. And so they took on the poetic establishment and tried to find ways of helping their students detach themselves from experience, become uh, uh, observers instead of participants. Uh, the alphabet experience was one that enabled you to interiorize experience. Uh, and you could actually, this is something they discovered, you could think in words. With the alphabet and with writing, uh, experience went from being uh, an organic thing to having three different aspects. Uh, there was the word in the mind before you spoke, which was a completely new experience. Uh, there was the word on the page, and there was the spoken word. Three different experiences of language, whereas before there was only one, and it combined all of those things. And the new philosophy wanted to have this abstract ability of thinking without speaking. Uh, and now, Mimesis, uh, this is the technique of participating in language. Uh, mimesis was the enemy. Aristotle came up with a technique he called the syllogism. Mimesis meant thinking in images. They wanted thinking in words. Um, so the syllogism is a little logical trick, uh, a bit of algebra with words. <laughs> Um, and it has three little components, a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. A major premise like uh, all dogs have four legs uh, is a major premise. Mm -hmm. so, and you say, well, so what? You say, well, this animal has four legs, therefore, that's a, this animal has four legs, there's the minor premise. So you put those two together and you come up with a conclusion. A conclusion. Therefore, this animal must be a dog. Right. Well, there's a fallacy in there. Uh, so let's try another one. Um, people sleep at night. Major premise. Minor premise. We are people. Conclusion. Therefore, we sleep at night. And that's pretty much sustainable. Um, uh, well, this is a way of sorting out, see, you don't need to speak to do this, and you certainly can't, um, you cannot think in images, you cannot syllogize in images. Mm -hmm. uh, all men are mortal, Nathan Gilmore is a man, therefore Nathan Gilmore is mortal. How mm -hmm. was that planned? Bulletproof. So let's try making an image. You can construct images of most things. All men and women are mortal. Okay, so you need an image of all men and women. Can you do it? <laughs> and there's the trick, and and this is what you makes... 
You, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could have a picture of a few dozen in your mind, or two or three men and women, but all men and women, that's billions of people. Mm-hmm. And 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 it, it's related to a common uh, criticism of of visionary writing that you know a a mystic or a visionary will sometimes write that I had the experience of the infinite presence of God, mm-hmm. and you know that 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 claim categorically is a verbal intellectual claim. It cannot be an image. There is no image of the infinite. No. Or, or of a being that doesn't have a physical manifestation. Right, right. Uh, like an angel. Mm-hmm. We can concoct one. We picture them as people with wings. And we all know that that's really not the case because they don't have bodies. Uh, but we adopt that as a sort of convention. Still, if you're trying to picture something... With that doesn't have a body, well, it can't be done. Mm-hmm. We don't have any tangible experience of it. Right. Now, what's interesting here, of course, is that, you know, in this history you're tracing, and I mean, you've talked about the rock and roll concert, you've mm-hmm. talked about the invention of the syllogism, uh, it seems that the mystical experience, as I was, you know, just indicating, is the place where the textual experience, the syllogistic experience, by necessity, comes into contact with the image experience uh, to where the, you know, a mystical experience of an angelic being, like you just talked about, is going Mm -hmm. to have certain visual characteristics, even as we have to say that whatever it is that we saw is not precisely an an angel because, by definition, an angel does not have a visual manifestation. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's invisible. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Um, Now, we all recognize that the pictures we draw of angels are metaphors. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least I think we all recognize that. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and I'm reminded of the the story of Julian of Norwich, where after she had her visionary experience of Christ on the cross, uh, she, she insisted on reading theology for 10 years so that she could write properly about it. Uh, that that strikes me as the sort of phenomenon you're talking about here. Hmm. Well, in a way, I guess, except that uh, Christ was also a human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was a physical presence and a visual one, a tangible one, mm-hmm. uh, at least for his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the glorified Christ, well, that may be a different kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, the, well, the, the corner that you turn in this book, and I want to turn the corner towards your examination of cyber culture. Um, sure. You know, once we sta- we've established the syllogistic mode of reasoning, and once we are making a return to image thinking, uh, you say that the late modern internet culture is a state of, and I'm going to use your term here, discarnation a flattening of bodily limits and differences that used to give human community certain determinate forms. Mm -hmm. So tell our listeners a little bit about how the Internet leaves us in such a state. Well, it it doesn't begin with the Internet. It goes back to 150 years earlier. 
let's uh, consider the telephone. Mm -hmm. I'm on the telephone at the moment and uh, also on the radio, uh, and you are as well. Uh, on the telephone, uh, you, your body is in one place, but you are in two places at mm -hmm. the same time. I'm here and I'm there where you are. And you're in your studio, but you're also right here uh, in my ear, on my desk. Uh, and the body is really not a uh, determining factor. It's not a, a restricting or constricting factor. It's just there. It's sort of irrelevant to this experience. You've mm -hmm. moved out of the body and you're somewhere else. Uh, we have a new name for that, cyberspace. Mm -hmm. But for over a hundred years, we didn't have any name for it at all. In fact, we didn't recognize it was happening. Um, this business of being outside the body changes the game plan. It changes the rules of the game. Uh, it gives us a new way of existing and of being. Uh, and these are metaphysical things. They're modulations of being. Uh, and that's very strange. And the funny thing is, metaphysicians and philosophers haven't begun to ask questions about this. But it's been part of our experience, as I said, over a century and a half. Right, and it strikes me that it's been part of popular fiction as well, because the plot line in, say, the detective story where the, the perpetrator is exposed and puts the protagonist in danger, and the protagonist either telephones or radios for help, and then there's that tension between the fact that the help knows that help is needed, but they have to cross that distance to get there, uh, strikes me that, you know, storytellers have been using that to create dramatic tension for decades at the very least. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And in fact, uh, one device that uh, playwrights use in movie, um, people who make movies, is the ringing telephone. It mm -hmm. creates tension. Right, right. You, you can't have a telephone on stage ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. It, it creates unbearable tension in the audience. Uh, or in a movie, mm -hmm. uh, if the phone rings, you have to answer it. Or you throw it across the room, what's up, and we're done. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the ringing telephone is a wonderful device for suspense. And, uh, and, but let me, let me come back to uh, something I had a moment ago. You're talking about images. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be in the 60s and 70s uh, when people talked about left and right side of the brain and so on. Um, it used to be a common uh, classroom ploy to pull the class and say, all right, everybody here, how many of you, when you think, when you think about things, about people, about uh, anything at all, do you think in words or do you think in images? Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, if you, you asked your parents, they would snap right back, oh, I think in words, of course, who doesn't? Um, you ask students now and they look at you puzzled, and every single one, or nearly every single one, will say, well, images, pictures, of course. What do you mean, think in words? They don't understand the question. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because they're so far removed from, well, this is exactly the war that Plato and Aristotle were fighting. Mm -hmm. They had a group of people who could not think in any other way except thinking in images. And that got in the way of their being logical. Right. And then, so, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, uh, a device for training people in thinking in words, and that was the syllogism. Well, we're now at the other end of that stick. Mm -hmm. There are people who can't imagine thinking in words. Mm -hmm. They imagine with images as part of their imagination. Right, uh, right. Uh, and, and it resonates, honestly, because I am a, an English professor at a small college, so I spend a lot of my time oh. teaching the young to write. And, you know, when I, when I train new faculty, which is part of my job, uh, uh, one of the things that I have to tell them is that, you know, for the 19-year-old in 2015 to think in words, like you've just been saying, or to think syllogistically or in terms of, paragraphs with transitions and things like that mm -hmm. is in effect learning a second language that we've got to teach students to be bilingual in a sense yeah you know one thing i found i, I taught english as well one mm -hmm. thing i found that helped is retrieve the practice of reading aloud mm -hmm. if you teach them to read aloud and give them a lot of practice at it uh -huh you'll find it engages them in print in ways that they haven't experienced before. Mm -hmm. It helps pull them back into their bodies. Um, well, all of this talk of, of the discarnation that you've been... Let's go back to that. Yeah, you've been spinning it out, and it reminds me of uh, Walker Percy's term in the, in the novel Love in the Ruins, that certain human beings are are experiencing angelism, uh, that they have become a, a parody of the angelic in that uh, they are still bodies, and yet the order of their lives denies that. Uh, you really kind of trace out some of the ethical implications of that shift. Uh, what sorts of ethical questions should we, we be asking about this this travesty of the angelic that our existence has come to such a great extent? Well, it, uh, where to begin with this one? It's a very big question. Uh, the discarnate experience is so much a fact of everyday life that nobody notices it. But it invests everything that we do, our, our entire world of electronic media is a discarnate one. Uh, we've taken the inside of a central nervous system and put it outside. We've turned ourselves inside out, really. Uh, and we have to put the body to one side or we could, could not do any of the things that we take as normal. When you go on the Internet, you are not in two places at once. You're in two million or two billion places at once. You are everywhere the internet reaches. Mm. Uh, a funny thing about the telephone system as well, um, when you pick up the phone and you dial a number, you get connected. Uh, the telephone network has to be complete in its availability to you. 
uh, or it's no use at all. Uh, in other words, the idea of charging for long distance is a fiction because every telephone call is a long distance call. There is no separation of space anymore. Uh, on the internet, you are simultaneously in Russia, in South America, uh, in Rome, in Canada, in Inuvik, everywhere at the same time. Uh, you just happen to tune in to one or another place momentarily. Uh, but this has the effect of erasing private identity. Mm -hmm. And this is a very crucial thing because it has serious psychological side effects. Um, one of the uh, requirements for private identity is an intersection of a body and the mind. If you take away the body, then there is nothing on which to base a private identity. Private identity is um, a fiction or an artifact of the alphabet. Mm -hmm. and, and only of the alphabet. It, it's an odd thing, but the only cultures that have ever developed objectivity and detachment and private identity are alphabetic cultures. Mm -hmm. Cultures with, that use syllabaries, in which every character stands for a whole syllable. Cultures that use syllabaries don't go that far. Uh, they still have group identity and group experience. And a very good example is to be encountered in uh, uh, Arab cultures, for example. Um, the cultures that have adopted Islam, uh, which is a group experience. Um, and generally, group-oriented cultures become very wary, very cautious, very suspicious of anybody with private ideas, and private ambitions, private thoughts, uh, anybody who has the capacity for detachment and individualism. Individualism, obviously, is the opposite of group experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and Christianity uh, emphasizes individualism. You have a soul that is uniquely you and nobody else. Uh, and for that soul and its fortunes, you and only you are responsible. Uh, and so on, up and down the line. Mm. Well, and that's interesting because one of the explorations in this book that I found most interesting and has, has kept me thinking over the last several days since I finished the book is the idea that the doctrine of sin actually... I, I, I don't want to say it gets distorted unless you want to say that, but it seems like at the very least the doctrine of sin undergoes significant change in this discarnate context. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? Well, yes. Um, without private identity and individual identity, you cannot have individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's an either-or thing. Uh, and that is, again, one of the hallmarks, the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity. Um, mm. Without uh, individual responsibility, then there's no individual sin. 
and we have begun to develop a number of strategies. Uh, we have, for example, no-fault divorce, mm -hmm. um, no-fault auto insurance. Uh, there's no private responsibility implied. Uh, and <laughs> this may be the thin edge of a very big wedge that is just beginning to drive itself into our culture and our lives. Um, private, uh, uh, private experience is uh, not a very welcome thing. Uh, we're busy developing group experiences of all kinds. Uh, but group responsibility is uh, quite a different character. Uh, and this appears to be the direction that every, everything is uh, tending to move at the moment. Mm -hmm. and, and I invite you and our listeners, keep your eyes open. Watch, out, watch for these things and see uh, how they manifest themselves. Uh, it, I can see it as uh, not beyond the bounds of uh, imaginable experience. Mm -hmm that we would begin to develop, let's say, uh, grading systems in schools where you're not really held responsible if you don't do all that well on this or that test, because that would be, uh, let's say, too discriminatory. Mm -hmm. Discrimination, by the way, in our, our manual for uh, countering discrimination, I'm not making an argument here about its merits. Uh, is another kind of private versus group. Discrimination mm -hmm. is almost always group. Uh, and uh, the group then experience is something that to which we are becoming quite sensitive, uh, mm -hmm. quite fearful, uh, because, uh, uh, well, how, how to put it? We are, we are traditionally a private culture, an individualistic culture. Mm -hmm. Look you and take stock of the ways in which uh, individual experience is being shed and group experience is becoming prized and normal. Mm -hmm. um, now, the counter, to counter this, there's really only one way, and that is um, literacy, alphabetic literacy. Mm -hmm. Because uh, that is the source of private experience, uh, and if it's on the wane, then so is literacy. It, it is uh, not at all an exaggeration to say that uh, literacy is now countercultural. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> we are. It's not on the wane. It's not, um, you know, a, a subculture. It's counterculture. As it was in Plato's time and Aristotle's time, it was countercultural. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we're replaying that experience only in reverse. Hmm. They were moving into it, we're moving out of it. Interesting. Well, in the, in the essay proper's closing, you have a, a few lengthy appendices after the essay finishes, but <laughs> as, as the essay proper comes to a close... Yeah. Uh, you call for a, quote, theology of the bodiless, close well, quote. Now, I, I, I don't expect you to lay out a systematic theology here in, in five minutes, but what kinds of questions might such a theology pose that 
theology hasn't been posing as much up to this point. Well, let me say right off the bat, I'm not a theologian. I took a couple of courses in theology in graduate school because I had to. <laughs> uh, but I've, uh, I'm really grateful for that experience because it opened the doors to a world of thinking and with contemplation that I hadn't expected or hadn't suspected to exist. Um, I came across uh, a, a book or an encyclical written by Pope John Paul II uh, called uh, The Theology of the Body. And this really knocked me off my heels because I hadn't expected anybody to... Um, delve into that in this age of disembodied communication. Uh, but in a way it makes sense. Um, it's a lengthy thing, and if you know how to read these things, how to uh, work your way past some of the theological um, packaging, uh, the guts of it are astounding. Uh, and it's the first document of its kind. There's nowhere, anywhere, uh, in any of literature uh, that is a study of the meaning of the body. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the body has very special meaning in, uh, in Catholicism and Christianity. One of the tenets of our religion is the resurrection of the body. Uh, and uh, the body is heir to a whole number of ills and temptations and susceptibilities. Uh, it is also the basis of uh, identity, uh, private identity, individual identity. The angels are created spirits without bodies, and as a result, they don't have private identity. What they have instead, as Thomas pointed out, is an odd uh, organization in which every single angel is a separate species. Mm. Uh, and I think that is what people, disembodied people, mean when they have uh, this sense of um, individualism on the Internet. They're, they're not really, it's, they're using the old word, but the experience isn't the old experience. I think they're, they're announcing that each one of them is a separate species. Right. So, well, that's right there, a, a very dramatic change. Um, anyway, John Paul wrote this study about the theology of the body, and what we really need is a way of taking account of the bodiless, of, of the, our everyday experience, which we regard as commonplace, so much so as it's unremarkable, of being able to flit about the universe uh, instantaneously uh, from place to place, or to be in many places at the same time. Um, and there is nowhere any kind of accounting for what the meaning of that is. We, now we have a pretty good handbook on the meaning of being in the body, but no handbook of meaning of being out of the body without being dead. Mm -hmm. Normally in human experience, when you separate body and uh, spirit, or body and mind, uh, that condition is death. 
So we are, in a way, the living dead. Hmm. We are all zombies, as it were. Walking, <laughs> but, but, but what would you call it? How would, how would you term this condition that we find ourselves in right at this moment? Well, honestly, when I think about it, uh, I think about not necessarily body as the first question so much as space as the first question. Uh, and it strikes me that, you know, with the telegraph, you get a condensation of space that the species hadn't known before. And then mm -hmm. again with the telephone and then again with the mobile telephone uh, mm -hmm. to where, you know, the students that I teach right now who are 18 years old and have had mobile phones since they were six years old. Uh, just operate with a working expectation that wherever they happen to be, whatever latitude, whatever longitude, they can instantly speak with any human being they've ever known. And, you know, that that is phenomenologically, e even in the brief span between, you know, my childhood and theirs, a wild difference in the, in the consciousness of space. Yeah, well, you mentioned latitude and longitude, but those... Uh, our physical things, and we now have um, the global positioning satellite. You don't need Latin long anymore. Yeah, <laughs> true enough, true enough. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, when I think of communication technology, that's the first question I would think of, which honestly is why your book, uh, you know, when you propose that, faith, hope, and love are synesthetic modes of knowing. It struck me as an interesting turn from where I usually go with this question. And as we're heading towards the end here, I mean, tell our listeners a little bit about the theological virtues and the role that they play in this bodiless, non-place we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I was surprised also to... <laughs> realize that faith and the theological virtues are senses. Mm -hmm. That hope and love are actually senses, forms of sensibility. Um, and and as such, they also have a senses communis. St. Paul mm -hmm. points out, you know, he, he says faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of them is love. Mm -hmm. Care. So the greatest of them, that is the one that embraces the bunch, is charity or love. Well, there's the senses communis of that group. Uh, the bodily senses, it's touch. The intellectual senses, it's literal. The literal sense is the one out of which all the others proceed. Mm -hmm. um, I remember being taught as a young man a young boy, that the faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that it's, it's not something you can just conjure up. You have to ask for it, and then it has to be given to you. And it isn't always. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that, there's a whole set of mysteries <laughs> right there. But aside from that, it's Faith is a way of knowing. It's not a set of ideas. It's not belief or opinion. Although we casually will use the word to mean, um, I believe this. I have faith in so and so. 
Um, but faith actually is a much deeper matter than that, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's a kind of theological knowing. If you have faith, you know certain things. Just as if you have vision, you know certain things. You know the way something works. You know what color it is. Um, and you can't explain how you know or why you know. You just know. Mm -hmm. Faith is uh, of that order, only in a different arena of experience. Mm -hmm. Theological or spiritual knowledge. Hope also is knowledge, and love, for heaven's sake, love is a kind of knowledge. If you love someone, you know that someone in uh, a completely new and profound way. And if you develop love, you begin to know the world in a completely new and profound way. We've had a number of examples of exactly that on uh, news reports in the last few days from people in Paris mm -hmm. who've been speaking about their love and the fact that they they refuse, let's say, to be uh, bullied by the terrorists into hating. Mm -hmm. uh, you say, I'm, I will not give in, I will not hate them. If I learn to hate, they win. Right. Uh, well, here's a very good example of love as a way of knowing. Of hmm. charity, caritas, as a way of knowing. The three theological virtues. Hope, what was it St. Paul said about hope? This, uh, it's the knowledge of things... Oh, heck, I can't think of the words. <laughs> Substance of things hoped for. Uh, it's actual, substantial, tangible knowledge. It's not just airy, sort of wishful thinking. Hope is a way of knowing. Of knowing with certainty, exactly the way faith is a way of knowing, and love is a way of knowing. Um, and that... Uh, the idea that they have a community of sensing, that they form a group uh, and an exclusive group, there's in the fourth virtue or fifth or sixth. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same with the others, the other groups of senses. Very good. Well, Dr. McLuhan, I have been asking the questions for most of this conversation. So, in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word today. As we wrap up, what do you want our listeners thinking about media, mysticism, and other matters of our moment? That's a very nice alliteration, by the way. Thank you. Um, look around you and keep stock. In one of my appendices, I start to list the side effects of this discarnate condition that has overtaken us. Um, look around you and see what other manifestations of that you can locate. And the thing I, I think it's important to give some thought to uh, this question, should we in some way combat 
some of the effects of being discarnate because some of them are pernicious. Uh, I don't want to go into that now. I'd say encourage everybody to go out and buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think um, it's in some ways a disease, a cultural disease, um, or a malaise. It undermines anything and everything we account as civilized because that's based on individualism and detachment. Well, Dr. McLuhan, thank you for coming on. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, what are some of the other side effects that I didn't mention? Mm -hmm. And what can you do to forestall those, uh, let's say, creeping any further into your life and your experience? Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. McLuhan, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Well, thank you very much for having me. And listeners, thank you for downloading and tuning in again. Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.